so nice to be with you once again. I'm filled with rapturing joy to be able to share some time together and to delve deeper into the secret mysteries of the Torah. In doing so, we will explore a few sources to what we discussed on previous occasions as to where does the person really exist? How much of us is just the covering, the shell, the casket? And how much of us is the intrinsic being, the part of us which is indestructible and immortal? Now obviously, if we have some type of access, ways of exploring and getting to that place, that would be the ideal, because then we've truly come to know ourselves. So we're going to begin with a source, and it's a strange source. It's something which is extremely familiar, or should be, to all of you. Something which is fundamental to Judaism, and it comes up twice a day, if not three times, and it's called the Shema. Funny place to start, Shema Yisrael Hashem Ukenu Shem Echot. Shema Yisrael, before going into exactly what Shema Yisrael means, but Shema Yisrael, we should understand, Hashem Elohim, the one that keeps the creation going and created it, Elohim is directly involved in our lives. Hashem Echad, and there's nothing else in this world which is not an expression in some way of Hashem's will, even though the world appears to be a place of diversity and different contrary things all operating in the same sphere, the belief of Shema Yisrael is that underneath it all there's a common uniting power and that even though things may appear to be contradictory, in fact there's ultimately a connection between all. The dead and the live cooperate in the fulfillment of the divine will. And this, of course, is highly um, contrasted to other presentations of the conflict of good and evil. For example, the one presented in the war, war between good and evil in the Lord of the Rings. That's a book. It's really weird. Yeah, it is really well. Right yes. Well, it's for me, it's for, for, for me, it's a book. Uh, but for you, it's a movie. Uh, it's a book written by J. R. R. Tolkien, and in the book, he describes the war between the forces of light and the Dark Lord in Mordor, who threatens to take over the world and the ring. My precious, precious, precious. So. In the, in the war, what happens is you've got these two elite forces pitted against one another. What will happen if Sauron, the Dark Lord, wins? Ellie. You... Sorry? Another world. And what would that world look like? Dark. It will be governed by the forces of evil. And what will happen to light and goodness and all that's right and fantastic? <laughs> gone, wiped out in other words, and the war is who's going to win meaning there's a real conflict over here and it could go either way and the sense of relief at the end of it is that whew, what a close shave, the forces of light went out against, sorry for anyone who hasn't run the, <laughs> the book, apologize in the movie, apologize, yes yes in the end he loses um, <laughs> 
Sorry, sorry, no, sorry. Mm. Yeah, now I know why you haven't been coming. So in that in that presentation of the fight between good and evil, the fight the good and evil are not cooperating; they are fighting with one another. If we, in our own interpretation of the struggle of good and evil in our lives, view it through that paradigm, we are engaging in a perception of the world which is completely contrary to Jewish belief. Because Jewish belief says, That there is nothing which is not the will of Hashem, whether it be good or evil. That means, the Dark Lord is a servant of the ultimate light. It's a complete paradigm shift. That even the darkness is in the service of good. Even the most deepest, most directful, perverse evil is only there to facilitate goodness. And this point, to give you a source of the knowledge of evil inside of yourself, let's return back to the story of creation. When man was created and upon the completion of the creative process involving man, the creator himself comments and says when he saw man's created form, and did see the Lord all that was done, and it was good, very until now at the end of each and every day of creation the comment that the creator made was and it was good yet it comes to the sixth day and the creator says and it was toiv ma'oid it was very good and Rashi says what's toiv ma'oid? says Rashi says oh sorry says Rabbi Gottlieb I made a mistake <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not Rashi, it's a Medrash. It says the Medrash, Toiv, Zeh, Yetzer, Toiv. Good means when Hashem saw that it was good, it's referring to the creation of man, and the good is a reference to the good inclination. Ma'oid, very good, even better than the good inclination, is there? Very good. No! <laughs> no! Let's try that again. Let's rewind. <laughs> Better than the good inclination is the evil inclination. That's the good inclination is good. The evil inclination is very good. Do not earn think that the good inclination is, you know, but. Averas, mmm, those are really good. That's not what it means. It means that in terms of producing goodness, the good inclination is good. But the Yetzirah is excellent, it's fantastic, it's phenomenal in doing that. Now the obvious question is, what's so good about the Yetzirah in the terms of goodness? It's bad. It's Yetzirah, not Yetzirah Toiv. So why is Ra Toiv? Why is good bad? And why is the Jewish perception of the reality of the world so different from Tolkien's? <laughs> yes. You the Christian. If uh, without without the Yitzhara, um, any good that you do doesn't matter. Exactly. In other words, the notion of the existence of evil, good and evil in this world, is we realize that the only thing the Abish ever wanted to give us was good. But the problem is that 
if we just thrust goodness upon us, it wouldn't be our own, it wouldn't be earned, it wouldn't be deserved. And hence, he has to give us room to earn it. In order to give us room to earn it, we have to make a choice. To make a choice, there has to be, you could do good, you could do bad. Once you have an opportunity to choose between the two and you choose not to do bad and to do good, you've made the good a part of yourself. So it comes out that the Yetzirah, really, his mission is to make you do good. But he's there to provide the resistance that your good is meaningful. You, you, you use it as a, state as a premise that we have to earn like the good. We can't just be given it. Why not? If we were given the good, it's not ours. Exactly. If I, so then, you as an individual would not experience the goodness as yourself. You'd have no sense of self. You'd have no sense of being. You'd have no sense of existence. The Create himself exists. So he could essentially stretch his arm out further and make a whole lot of robots functioning and doing his will. But then you've just got more God. You've got no man to defeat the whole purpose of creation of another. In order for there to be another, there has to be a distance. In order for the distance to occur, it means that everything you have is not only coming from me. It's coming from you as well. But it, I mean, but okay. it is. Okay. Cool. But it is. So the only thing you have is the ability to choose. Yeah. So in other words, you see something, something so fundamental, people get so the wrong idea up here. You see that the purpose of creation is to bring about the notion of an individual. Fascinating. Existent, and it almost, this is, this is the paradox of creation. The goal of creation is to create a person that can cleave to Hashem. Because he's not. <laughs> Because he's not cleaving to Hashem at creation, the purpose of it is to work back to the point of no freedom of choice through freedom of choice. The ultimate is to become subsumed into the light of Hashem, but by doing so through your own will, you have a connection to that as opposed to it being God, the Creator. And the only way you can do that is by working against the resistance of evil. Before I take your question, let's just give an example to this process in the physical world, a marshal, an analogy. As we know, Gabriel knows for sure, if a person goes into a gym and he wants to build muscles, in other words, a process of building, how does that occur? Well, he goes into the gym and he thinks, listen, I want to build muscles, but I simultaneously do not want to put in any effort. So I'm going to go there and I'm going to lift the weights which are as light as possible. What will happen to the person is not much. Because in order to build, you need resistance. Now what you know is that the greater the degree of resistance, the bigger the muscle formed. If you have little resistance, you build little muscles. If you have big heavy weights, then your muscles increase in size. Spiritual muscles are no different. The more resistance there is that needs to be overcome, the greater strength is required to do so. So the more a person resists the bad, the more bad there is, the bigger the good becomes. That's why the Yetzir Horror is Toiv Ma'oid. It makes the, the, the Toiv much bigger. You follow, Shmelka. Team. You follow. Good? Okay, we're just going, we're getting along. That's Shem Echad means, and I realize that everything that enters into my life and everything that's out there in the world is tied into this purpose of connecting to the Creator. And all the trials and tribulations that pass me by in my day are all there to stimulate growth. 
It's a completely different perspective of the world. When we say Shema sincerely, it completely, completely changes the way we view everything. So if like we're put in situations that are so if we want to be a better person, we should put ourselves in bad situations for this to even... Well, thanks to the Creator, He kind of designs life for you. So the situations that are needed to bring out your particular strengths come your way whether you like it or not. You don't have to go looking for them. Mm-hmm. They're anything, they're, that's, that's, there's two elements of Emunah. The first element of Emunah is everything that happens to me is there to test me and to produce growth. And the second principle of Emona is everything that, everything that happens to me is tailor-made to suit my life and my position. The, Ram, the Ramban says this principle that he says the test is always for the good of the one being tested. In, in the characteristic sense of testing in the, in the ac- academic world, the reason why you're testing is to know if the person knows the information or not or can stand up to the challenge. In the Torah world, in the, in the world of Emuna, Hashem tests you, He knows that you have the potential to succeed. But He allows the test in order for you to bring out the potential into reality and make it yours. But to say that absolutely everything that happens to you is like... is exactly what you need and everything, I mean, that, that seems to take away other people's freedom. That's, that's, that, that's an old problem old philosophical problem meaning I come up to you in the morning and I say Jeremy you are the most despicable person I've ever met so, so you you like you've heard the share that I've just said and you thought listen he's got shocking medias but it's clearly a test for me so you think about what the test could be and for example it's a, the, the classic quoted situation is David Amelech is cursed by a person called Shimi Ben Gary comes and he gives him the worst curse and David's response is Hashem Omar Loikino, Hashem told him to curse. Meaning our relationship even to other people's freedom of choice is that it's divinely ordained. So when someone steps on my toe, someone spits in my general direction, someone hurls abuse, these are things which happen of course on a regular basis, which is causing me to think a lot. <laughs> when people do that to me, I think this is a sign from the Creator to fix something up inside of myself. The problem is that person is all culpable for his actions. So when a person comes and he smashes my Ming vase, which is worth a lot of money, so I have to think, aha, Hashem allowed him to smash it. At the same time, I can take him to base him and get him to pay. And he's responsible and he has to pay. And he has to come and ask me for Mechila that he did something wrong to me. You said something different now. You said that Hashem allowed him smash it. I take it back. Hashem decreed that he should do it. Okay. Which is a problem. Because if Hashem decreed it, he didn't choose it. And if he chose it, Hashem didn't decree it. Correct? That's your philosophical problem? That's what it seems. That's what it seems. So that's a very sticky philosophical problem. It's brought to the fore in the case of Joseph and the brothers. Yosef and his brothers are (coughs) they sentenced Yosef to death. And the way they choose to kill him is by executing him. I don't know what they were going to do, chop off his head or something or the like. Comes along Ruvain and he says, let's not do that. Let's throw him into this pit. And the verse says explicitly, I think that's the words, that he saved his life. 
Later on, you see that this pit was a rake, vabor rake, ain't going mine. The pit was empty, there was no water. The Gemara asks, surely if it was empty, we know there was no water, it was empty. So the Gemara learns that the Pasuk is saying the extra words in order for us to say, water there was not, but snakes and scorpions there were. So Reuben saved his life by throwing him into his pit of snakes and scorpions. Now the loch is, if a person is thrown into a pit of snakes and scorpions, you can assume he's dead. Wait, wait, how did we get to the snakes and scorpions in there? The verse says that the, 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 the pit was empty and there was no water. From the extra phrase, and there was no water, the implication is it was empty of water, but it was full of something else. And the Gemara concludes what it was full of was snakes and scorpions. So you've got this pit which is filled with snakes and scorpions, and Ruvain, in an act of saving Yosef, his brother, from certain destruction, throws him into a pit of certain destruction. Problem problem. So there's a very famous Orachaim on this which is dealt with a lot. The Orachaim says the difference between these two scenarios is both ways they were essentially killing him. What difference if they chopped off his head? What difference if they threw him into a pit where there were lethal creatures waiting to kill him? The Orachaim answers by saying if they would have killed him from their own free will, so even though Hashem would have decreed that he should have been saved, the free will of the brothers would have overridden Hashem's decree. Whereas, if he's thrown into the pit, so Hashem can decree that the animals can't bite, bite him, can't sting him, and therefore they don't have free will. The implication of this Orachim is that a person's free will can act outside of the decree of the Creator. Which would mean that if a person has something done to him by another human being who exercised freedom of choice that was not decreed and it could be deeply unjust to you and it's not for any mission or message. Problem. Problem. Which means the majority of things that happen in our life are through the hands of freedom of choice. Very little happens from an act of God. Very little, very, very little that occurs to us in the course of a day is from purely natural trees falling down and earthquakes happening. Most of what happens to us is because people do it somewhere along the line. Correct? You're late for the bus is late, there's a traffic jam, that's all a series of a chain of cause and effect of different choices that people make along the line. So probably the, the vast majority of what happens to us is because of people's freedom of choice. Now, if you take the Orachim at face value, that when people choose, there's no divine intervention, so it would mean that the events in the world almost exclusively have no divine guidance. For example, was the destruction of the Twin Towers divinely ordained? Was there some type of meaning for us? No. People use their freedom of choice. Any terrorist attack? No. Any tragedy? No. Now that's extremely problematic because that would mean that essentially we relate to the world as pure random events which are prompted by human freedom of choice and therefore we have nothing to learn or gain from them, they have no meaning for us. Correct? So these are like these points in the Mustashir where, where I say, wow, that's a difficult problem. And then I go on to discuss things like soccer. <laughs> it's a big problem. And the problem is exacerbated by the Rambam. The Rambam. The Rambam says, in Hilchus Tanyas, that when a bad things happens to a person or to a community at large, it's 
a way of strangeness not to respond with tshuva. When bad things happen, our bad things could be anything. It could be the threat of war. One second, the threat of war is a series of freedom of choices. But, but yet we approach. You see that there are other sources which indicate categorically that there is divine guidance even through the choice of man. If so, what's the pshat, what's the pshat, what's the pshat? So the explanation of her to answer this or and to explain what does it mean when he says that if the brothers would have killed him, that would have been the freedom of choice. Even though death was not decreed upon him, he would have died. Yet when he fell into the pit, unless death was decreed upon him, he could not have died, even though there were snakes and scorpions. So the resolution of heard. It's a little bit premature to say, isn't it? I mean, we haven't really lived with it. We haven't really thought about it. We haven't delved into it, correct? For many of us, this idea is still... You have? A lot. A lot. Jeremy has a lot. Eddie, have you thought about this a lot? Rabbi Gottlieb has gone over this. Well, then why should I bother? <laughs> You're looking I for another hear, answer? You weren't satisfied with what he said? I hear lots of different things from lots of different people about it. So let me give you the, the answer which is given to by one of my rabbi, um, which is really not really an answer at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, that, that will be satisfying for you. Uh, he said to me, he actually said to me personally, he says, your father's a gastroenterology, isn't he? Gastroenterology, isn't he? I said, yes, he is. He said, does that mean if you don't understand the digestive system as well as he does, when you eat, your f- when you eat, your food won't be digested? <laughs> so I said, truth is, I've been eating for a long time now. And I don't actually notice a qualitative difference between his eating and my eating. He said, how can that be? He knows how the process works and you don't. So I said, well, I didn't say this, but I should have said this. I said, well, the difference is that in order to deal with something and work with it, you don't have to understand how it works. You just have to know that it does work. So the, the, the first evasive answer is, let's say we can't understand this. But if a person has a so then you're, but that's the way it is. But how does it work? How does it work doesn't interest me. It's, if it does work, it works. In other words, that's not an answer for a skeptic. That's an answer for a believer. If you accept that the Torah is true, and you accept, well, this is what the idea is, and then you say, listen, how does Hashem do it? How can I choose and simultaneously be, it be decreed? Have no idea. No idea. But I know that the Rebbe is great, and he's magnificent, and he can do anything. He can do this as well. But as, as Jeremy has an answer, and he thinks, Shkoyach, it's not satisfied. It doesn't nourish him. He doesn't want that. He wants something more tachlistic. So for him, we have the second answer. And I just hope that uh, Rabbi Gottlieb didn't say this, because then you'll be bored. Um, <laughs> he has about 50 pages of notes on it, so he probably did it. Oh, gosh. Um, you, you weren't there. Well, I think Jamie was the only one there, so I think the rest of us, we can... <laughs> there are two ways that the world is run. One is called Midas Adin, and one is called Midas Arachamim. It's called two anhogas, two different ways that the world is guided. One is called the strict law of justice, and one is called mercy. Now, the Midas Adin is an extremely harsh world. It's an extremely harsh world. It means that there's no room for error. The minute you err in the slightest way, you should be penalized to the nth degree. There's absolutely no room for even the slightest mistake. Perfection and absolute perfection is expected from the word God. That's called Midas Adin. 
the more of a person, the greater the tzaddik, the more he's judged on the level of Midas Adin. And that's why a person who was as righteous as Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the father of all of the Torah that we have, the oral Torah that we have today. What is his reward? His reward is he's killed in a brutal fashion. Reward in inverted commas. Meaning, even him dies a death where the very skin of his body is ripped off him with forks. His skin and he dies. And as he dies, he says, accepting the din upon him, saying that he's waited for this moment, as it were. Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva has been judged by the strictest law, letter of the law. The lower a person's level is, the more Hashem has to temper the law with what's called Midas HaRachamim. The explanation in the name of Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg in this Orachim is as follows. When a person is given over to the laws of nature, so the laws of nature function with the laws of Rachamim. Hashem can manipulate that Rachamim can occur. Hence, Yosef thrown into the pit when there's snakes and scorpions, the middle of Rachamim would say, we want to give him another chance. Granted, there are certain things that he's done wrong, which he is liable the death penalty for, but we're going to give him the luxury of a time lapse for him to fix up what he's done wrong. We won't, we won't execute him on the spot, which is what Midas Arachimim is. Midas Arachimim is a postponement of the din. It's not a wavering of the din, of the judgment, it's a postponement. It's a postponement, giving you a chance to fix up what you've done wrong. However, if a person intervenes, he has the right to override the strict, he has the right to override the Midas Arachimim, the merciful way that people are dealt with, and to execute the Midas Adin. The power of a man is to affect someone else, moving him from Anhoga of Rachimim into Anhoga of Din, from the framework of mercy to the framework of strict judgment. And therefore, the brothers, had they decided to execute Yosef, of course it's decreed by the Creator. But it wouldn't have happened if it would have been through the laws of nature. Man functions, awakens din. Nature doesn't. Have you heard that answer? Um, something like that. So it was much, much, much better explained, wasn't it? <laughs> but you were by Rabbi Gap. I was thinking myself, but that's a different issue that I have. Uh, you think Rabbi Gottlieb? I don't that means Rabbi Gottlieb. <laughs> <laughs> he does have I a am. nice long white beard. I didn't realize the explanation was in the beard. I thought it was in the words. <laughs> yeah, he stores yeah. the extra knowledge in the beard. Oh, when he his brain runs out of space, it goes in the beard. Interesting theory. Um, <laughs> I hear. I am. Well, just going to just dealing with that ego blow. One second. I'm <laughs> <laughs> taking a bit of time. To the kids are, that's that's a mahalach. That's mahalach, which 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 is which means it kind of makes a compromise between yes, the man is culpable, but he's also not culpable. So it makes sense why a person should be liable to pay because he moved the person into that category. But it also makes sense is that it's also decreed. So therefore, we can learn from it. It's meaningful. It's significant. It's something which is specifically designed to happen to us, and things kind of go well together. 
But the truth is, that wasn't the topic of our share at all. What we wanted to discuss today was the levels of self and how we find the deepest and most inner part of self. And quite frankly, um, I hold Jeremy personally responsible for, uh, for distracting us. Again, this could just be a sense of revenge. I'm trying to get him from the comment that uh, <laughs> I'm ineffective in explaining. But even Thank, so. Thank you for going through that. Listen, it was only for you and you already knew it in a much better way. It's not a problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, boys, so we're going we're we're to stop there, but I just want to thank Jeremy for that chair. And um, if anyone wants to hear the real well and the proper version, please see robert.gottlieb.com. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm not bitter. <laughs> this is the most share. We have to work on my medicine. And as you can see, what I'm demonstrating is I have a long way to go. <laughs> yes. I have a long way to go, and that's something you should see, and hopefully in the course of actually I'll get there. Really, it's, it is good to hear from other people to see what they've heard, because I, I, I really hear different things almost every time I ask. Um, so I'm glad there was some side benefits to that whole rhetoric. Thank you. I feel, I feel slightly comfortable. It's a direct benefit.